Afrofuturism in the AM is a weekly meditation podcast that accompanies your creative practice. Utilizing the past and present knowledge of the African diaspora, we discuss best practices for building a creative life so that we may design our future. Created by Artivism Community Art, hosted by Shatana Powell, featured on All Real Radio. So welcome. Um, I'm so glad I get a chance to speak to you today about Black creativity. I really appreciate continuing to engage with you over this process. Um, I'm not sure if you've listened to any of the previous shows, but I do want to say that um, I'm working on designing a K-12 experience so that um, children and families can learn about Afrofuturism. But that really just means that I have to engage with people um, within my community to really understand what it is that they need. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I always loved about you is how you connect your work of archiving and archival work to like creativity. And I wanted to know if you could introduce yourself and give me a little bit of your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, first, I want to thank you for interviewing me and for having me on. Um, I'm super excited and really thankful for the opportunity. Um, but also just to introduce myself, my name is Valerie Wade. I am the owner slash principal consultant for Linfield Historical Consulting. Um, through my company, I help people connect to history um, through a variety of ways, whether that's genealogy, or different types of research projects. It's uh, just my mission and my passion to help people understand how the past influences our lives today. And um, so, yeah, that's basically, you know, in a nutshell, who I am and what I do. And to answer your question about the connection between um, like archival work and creativity, um, I think like deep down, I do see preservation and archival work, archival work, people say it differently, but um, I see it as a method of art and a method of creation um, because an archive, you know, at its root is a, a collection of papers or objects or what have you, right? Um, but as an archivist, once you Kind of put a collection together or think about an idea for a collection the way the public uses that collection it's kind of out of your hands right it's you know they can come up with all kinds of ways to use what you put together and i think there is an art to that it's sort of like when an artist creates a song or a painting or anything once they put it out there the way people interpret it the way people use it the way people are inspired by it it's like, you know, it's like, that's on y'all, <laughs> you know, like that's kind of, um, you know, and I think that there's something sort of magical and, and really cool about that, about helping people see different aspects of history and then just putting it out into the world and just seeing how it inspires them and seeing what they do with it. Um, so that's sort of, you know, why I like doing this and why I like thinking of ways outside of, oh, I'm going to write a you know, uh, paper, you know, about this topic, which is incredibly important, 
not knocking that practice, but I'm just saying like, there's so many other ways to get people to think about history and get people engaged in history. And that's, I guess, kind of the base of how I connect uh, historical work and creativity. I like it. I think we have very similar views um, in that way. The thing that always gets me about working in an art space or a museum is that artwork is preserved forever. Mm -hmm. And um, I always like to think about ways that I can preserve things that people tend not to hold on to. Um, like we have an amazing amount of waste um, things that we don't have to especially waste. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, I know my favorite thing to always think about is school supplies, like crayons or pencils. Yeah. When my grandma passed away and we went through her stuff, we went to her closet and she had, I swear to God, like a huge trash bag full of pencils that had been sharpened down to the nub and she kept them all. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I think that's, interesting. that's art. That's like some, some, I don't know. It's like preserving a lifetime of writing mm -hmm. by keeping all of your old pencils. <laughs> wow. That is so interesting. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's yeah. I'm just, because I tend to keep things and I think just like being an archivist and being a historian I can be kind of a pack rat sometimes mm -hmm. um and I try to control that urge but I can kind of see where she was going right like I keep things that I'm sure somebody will come in here and be like well why do you have a folder full of this like what is the point and I'm just like don't worry about the point <laughs> <laughs> the point will come later so I just think that's interesting that she thought to keep those things um, despite, you know, like somebody might say, like, what's the tangible use? Like, what's the point? But she saw some sort of like use or connection to those items. That's really cool. And honestly, the more I engage in my own culture, Black culture, I realize that our culture is inherently, we, we keep things. We like, I remember it used to be a running joke. Like you can go to every single Black person's house you'll find a trash bag full of trash bags, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I collect bottles. I can't throw away glass bottles. I'm just like, why? We can reuse these. <laughs> I just, and I think I'm like about, that with jars. Yeah. <laughs> like, what else have you thought about or seen that's specific to like a Black culture that we kind of keep but it's just like, should we keep that? Why do we keep that? Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. I will say um, like plastic containers. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we, so with trash bags and plastic containers, I think that there's like a deeper thing going on. Like people laugh about it, make a joke about it, but I honestly feel like we understand inherently even if we don't necessarily have the words for it we have an inherent understanding that we are connected to the earth and that there are finite resources on our earth and i think that deep down we have an understanding that this one-time use thing that is very popular in the west or popular in the united states at least we understand that there's something off about that 
Like we see an item, we've used this item, a, a plastic bag from the grocery store or a, a butter container, you know, get the margarine in it. <laughs> or like fast food, you know, takeout containers. Like we have this item, we've used it one time, it has served that one use. But we, like in our culture, we can look at something that is quote unquote trash and see potential in it. So like this trash bag or this plastic bag can be used as a trash bag. Um, you know, in the bathroom, or, you know, it can be used as, um, you know, a lunch sack, you know, put your lunch in it in a rush, take the work. Um, it can be used, like, I just had a baby. Um, if I'm out and about, and, you know, he needs a diaper change, or, you know, something like that makes a mess, I can put the items in a trash bag, and, you know, <laughs> like, it's, there are multiple uses, right? Same for Tupperware containers. Um, yes, it served its purpose. This held my margarine for whatever amount of time, I used it. Now I can put leftover lasagna in it. Um, I can put it. You know, like it, it has another life. We have this understanding that an object can have multiple uses and multiple lives. And I think inherently we know that the waste of, of the West, it, like it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, I think our ancestors knew how to live lives where things were not wasted. Mm -hmm. uh, where you you use something until it couldn't be used anymore. Um, and I think that's why we we have this tradition, like just sort of inherently we keep things that we're like, okay, I know technically I could like, like you said, get more glass bottles. I can get more mason jars. It's not that big a deal, but just in our bones, there's just something that says, you know, you can use that again for something. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said, people joke about it. But I do think that there is something ancestral in the way that we see a new life in objects that other people would just look at as trash. I, I think that's a really important line of thought to actually explore. Um, because something that I thought about that is created using discarded things are quilts. And mm -hmm. um, Black women, um, you know, in the process of creating homes, or working in homes, being caretakers, being maids. Like we have created a practice of like recycling things that are easily discarded in our, our society and using them as tools. Um, because, you know, a quilt isn't just something to keep you warm. It's a piece of history. It's a piece of communication. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to know, like, are there any other I guess, art forms that we have that are, is based on that, is based on this idea that we shouldn't throw these things away and we can use them as tools. Gardening. Mm -hmm. I think that um, Black women and our uh, gardening, whether that's flower gardening or vegetable gardening, I think that there is this idea of kind of taking things that have been used or taking something old and making something new and beautiful or new and useful out of it again. Um, so like a lot of people don't realize that your kitchen scraps, your onions, um, you know, tomato seeds, you can save the seeds from your tomatoes and cucumbers and whatnot. You can just use that and plant it in your yard <laughs> and grow new food. Um, I think that, you know, and the same for like flowers and whatnot. I say all the time that an ivy is like an ancestral plant. Most black women I know, somebody's got an ivy in their house somewhere. And if the thing about an ivy is you can just snip off a part of it 
and grow a whole new plant. It's just this, I, I know there's, there's women who have ivies in their home or maybe like was started from a cutting that their grandmother had. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, oh, there's this plant, you know, I got a piece from uh, so-and-so and you know, now it's in my window. Like there's, I think that gardening is our way of kind of taking older things and keeping them alive, regenerating them and, and making new life. So yeah, quilting, definitely gardening also. <laughs> you know, I did hear that the, um, like the ivies and like kind of, again, it's just this, we are connected to the earth and we understand this very deep. And so we treat the earth differently and it shows up in our cultural practices. Um, I, I really think somehow like we can take that idea and connect it with this other idea, which I have written down, which is, um, I believe that because we are so diverse as black people, like we come from everywhere, um, even within the continent of Africa, when we were enslaved and taken, we came from everywhere. Yeah. So we are very diverse and therefore, instead of um, communicating um, simply, we can be, communicate very symbolically. Mm. Um, it's, it's very um, central to our thinking process. And because we're very symbolic in our communications, um, our communication can take any form. Um, and in the past, I believe like white critics of art would say things like, um, it comes from the soul of black people. Like if you were a jazz musician and you had um, excelled, they would say it wasn't because you studied and mastered your craft. Somehow you were born with it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of artists took offense to that because it kind of minimized the amount of time and energy that they spent perfecting their ability to use um, music as a form of communication. But I do want to say that, you know, if you strip away the racism from that statement and you recognize that we have communication patterns that are very symbolic, and I wanted to think about that idea and connect it to the idea of archiving. Um, mm. Because like we, I feel like we do have a, a small crisis, um, which is there's so much stuff to be archived within yes. our culture. Um, and can not you talk enough to archivists about, to do it. <laughs> talk to me about that crisis a little bit. Like, what is it that you've seen in your field that like we should all know about and be like trying to help fix? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking that question. I think that just off top, a lot of people don't know what archivists do. Um, you know, just in our community, like, what is an archive? Like, what, you know, it's kind of this foreign concept. Um, and that comes from, to me, at least my interpretation, just a history of institutional barriers um, and a history of institutions basically saying, oh, we take journals and we take, you know, these types of things into our collections. Um, and these are these items are what we use to interpret history and display history to the public, right? Well, for a huge part of our history, our ancestors didn't have journals because most of them were banned from learning to read and write. So we 
didn't get to engage <laughs> with these institutions in that same way, right? Um, until you know, technology enabled oral histories to be recorded and you know, different things like that. So we have objects, we have cookbooks, we have calendars, we have obituaries, we have letters that are, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, wrote on envelopes, you know, little notes that they would leave for us. We have objects, we have objects that tell stories, we have objects that hold value, jewelry. Our people can adorn themselves <laughs> like nothing else. Those are objects that tell stories. Um, so the idea that Black people don't, you know, have archives, I think is very problematic. We have archives. We just don't always have professional archivists to help people in our community, you know, kind of get those things into institutions or even organize them at home if that's what you want to do. Uh, understand, given the history of our relationship with certain you know, historical institutions, why people don't want to, you know, donate their things. I understand that. But um, the reason we don't have a lot of archivists, relatively speaking, in our community is because, I mean, often the pay is not enough to sustain a family, right? Um, and it's the same, you know, teachers are facing a similar uh, problem, right? You are a professionally trained person, you have a master's degree, um, but the pay just doesn't really reflect that expertise. So a lot of people don't see becoming an archivist or cultural worker or museum professional. They don't see that as a sustainable profession. Um, and that's a problem that we need to address. If we want to get more black archivists and archivists of color in general, the pay just has to increase. We don't come from families where our parents can sort of subsidize us, you know, in order to go into the profession. So that to me is a very real problem that needs to be addressed. And I think just changing our relationship to our historical objects. We have to stop thinking about grandma and grandpa's stuff when they pass away as junk to be sort of gone through and tossed. We have to stop that. Um, we have to start thinking about the things that they did collect as a collection unto itself. And we have to start thinking about proper ways to take care of those things. And that's where an archivist can come in and help families do that. And that's why I started doing this work. I don't want us to just kind of throw away all these objects because we don't see, you know, a use in them. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just stop there. It's a very long No, I think <laughs> you've given me so much. So when I was listening to you, I was hearing you talk about um, how our objects are the things that communicate our history. And communication has been something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, to kind of preface this, like, so you said traditionally institutions are looking for journals, um, like written works that they can use to tell history, but we communicate through, you know, collected objects, through art, through things that we made, through things that we have preserved. And so that, again, that goes back to symbolic communication. Like we communicate very symbolically or to like say it in a different way, it's like the form of our lives, the way that we lived our lives and the things that we created while we were living, that is the archive, mm -hmm. you know? And so again, it goes back to communicating our values through like our lives and what we do. But when it comes to education, Education does not value 
communication that isn't written. Mm -hmm. Like education only values books and it values um, things that come from words. But when you have a very symbolic method of communication, your knowledge is devalued or seen as um, like, oh, that's nice to have, yeah. but that's oh, not cute. important, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, I do think that that is, uh, to me, a major critique of education in the United States, the focus on the written, right? Like from standardized testing to everything else, um, there, there are other ways to be smart. There are other ways to communicate. There are other ways to sort of exist in the world that are kind of separate from this, you know, I don't know, like the, you know, just writing everything down, right? Um, so to me, like, that's the problem with getting rid of, you know, arts programs in schools. And that's why I love what you're doing, centering art and education. Uh, that's a mode of expression that is beautiful and technically rich. You know, like the things, you know, studying music, studying art, I mean, these things are, these are skills that deserve study. It's not just, you know, oh, kids are finger painting. You know, like there's, you know what I'm try trying to say? Like, this is just as valid as, you know, the kid who's really good at writing and, you know, excels at, you know, their English class or excels on the, the written portion of a standardized test, right? Like this is a skill and a type of intelligence that deserves value too. Um, so, you know, just saying, I agree that the this focus on the written can be problematic for cultures that don't really put that focus on the written. And that's not to say that we don't love words. We obviously do. <laughs> Zora Noah Hurston can attest to that and the way we play with language and, and whatnot. But um, I just, think that it's important to understand that communication looks different depending on, you know, where you are, who you are, you know, what context you're coming from. And society in general would do well to think about that and value that. Um, everything doesn't have to come from a newspaper article or a journal or, or something like that. Uh, stories can be told in a lot of different ways. It can be told through song, painting, quilts, you know, um, you know, all kinds of stuff, a collection of clothing. And I think it's also important to think about the fact that for a lot of our ancestors, they either did not have the space to keep everything or they had to move around a lot. So they couldn't take all of, you know, everything with them. Whereas in some communities, you know, your grandparents got a house and y'all managed to keep that house in the family for like generations. And so it's not a big deal for somebody in that community to go up to the attic and find an old journal from 1842 because their family, you know, has essentially, you know, they've been able to kind of preserve these objects. And so in our community, when our elders hold on to something and keep something, that's important. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times it took a lot of effort to hold on to you know, whatever that item was. And that is that they're communicating something through that. They're trying to express, like, this is valuable to me. This is valuable to my family. This tells a story that I want to know um, whether it looks like quote unquote junk or not. And I think that's where we really do need to have a conversation about archives and creativity and communication. 
because what may be important in one community, it may not seem important in another. So we have to learn different ways of telling stories. Honestly, um, everything you're saying is leading me into what I have come to understand as a possible solution um, when it comes to like education, arts education, um, because like the question is like, what is as a, what is education and what should it be doing, right? And I don't especially wanna get into that because I feel like we've spoken about that, but the conclusion I came to is that education should serve the needs of a community, right? Mm -hmm. If you live in a world where you need to, you need to know how to do taxes, then your education should teach you how to do taxes. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> so honestly, the because the big crisis is preserving our history, preserving these archives that our parents and our families have kept up with over the times that they've lived, I think that our education should be getting children, getting young people to be those archivists, mm -hmm. you know, because then you're centering them as well as centering history, you know, through the process of archiving things, they're going to be able to create and build skills. Yes. Um, and we're definitely in the age of skills over knowledge, because you can learn anything online, you can pick up a book, but you need to be able to do something, you know? Yeah. And I feel like um, that's a very eloquent solution to the needs that our community has and, um, and helping us solve a lot of our education and communication barriers. Um, yes. yeah. I, I've recently been like researching some things um, very in a Pan-African way, like what is communication as it relates to education and in South Africa, they have they they have a youth day. Like, first of all, the United States does not celebrate its youth, and that's unfortunate. It's a missed opportunity. Um, but in South Africa, they have a youth day right around the same time um, we do Juneteenth. And I thought about the connections between those two, like um, Freedom Day and Youth Day. And the story behind South Africa's Youth Day is that. Um, during colonial, like earlier in like the colonial period, they wanted to change the language of African education to Afrikaans, which is not an African language. It's a, like a white settler. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm kind of like, huh? <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah. the logic of the colonized government was that um, the Black people living in South Africa were going to have to go into white institutions to get work. And therefore they should be taught using the language of the colonizer. And all of the children revolted, like all of them. <laughs> Which, you know, honestly, it keeps, it's in, it's in line with history. The children are the revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. And so their, their reasoning was so eloquent. It was like, um, they felt like education shouldn't be focused on um, how to write and read correctly, but instead it should be about the substance of a subject and learning how to utilize those subjects in their everyday lives. And um, a lot of kids got killed. Um, it was very difficult to like reread this history because, you know, 
you're watching children like put their bodies on the front lines for something as simple as being able to control the language that they learn in. But um, because of that, South African education systems um, allows the kids to use their languages. And there's a lot of different languages that they have um, that they utilize in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and when I read that story, it felt almost like, um, like a roadmap on how to escape a colonized education system. And it feels very similar to the mission and vision of what I'm trying to do, which is we know we have a colonized education system that focuses way too much on reading and writing and doesn't serve the needs of our community. And if we were simply to be able to communicate symbolically, which is our, which is our language, symbolism, then we would be serving our needs. And therefore that's the fight. Um, I wonder what role could institutions like libraries play in this kind of fight, I suppose? Libraries are crucial, okay? I, um, and it saddens me, the current state of libraries saddens me in a lot of ways because I think that there is a push to force libraries to be more of a tool of colonialism. Um, like we're seeing like this huge thing that they're doing with quote, critical race theory, which we know is not what they are saying it is, you know? Um, they're trying to force, you know, libraries and librarians to sort of, you know, be tools in this, you know, like we're not gonna allow the youth to read certain books and whatnot. And we're gonna find you if you don't pull these books off your shelves, like this whole thing that they're trying to do. Wow. Um, because libraries, and I just to step back a bit, libraries are close to my heart because as someone who grew up in a rural environment, I come from deep East Texas, um, the library was where I got access to everything. Like as a really small kid, like I remember my very first library card that my mom got me. She used to take me to the library all the time. She couldn't necessarily afford to buy me every single book <laughs> that I wanted to read, but the local public library was just so valuable in helping me learn to read and opening up the world for me. And I feel like the library still serves that purpose. It helps everybody, whether you have money or not, uh, to get exposed to the world, to help with your literacy skills. Um, it's it's a place of networking. It's a place where moms can come and bring their kids and you know have story time. Like it's a it's a very community centered space that I wish our society valued more. Like libraries should get so much more funding. So like the leadership needs to value the frontline workers and not just these you know lofty ideas that they have and then they you know have people run around like chickens with their heads cut off. You know like it it needs to be valued more, the work of librarians needs to be valued more. And I just wanna emphasize that because in like your question, how can libraries help with this idea of um, communicative education and, and whatnot? Uh, they are one of the few places in our society where it's free to use. Like when you really think about it, where can you go and spend a few hours just being, you know, reading or writing or listening to whatever you want to do without compelled, being compelled to buy something, mm -hmm. right? Um, so because of that, 
libraries can be spaces where different, you know, lessons can be taught to supplement or complement what kids are getting in schools. Um, librarians can help teachers with their curriculum with different topics, you know, by providing books or reading lists or just being another resource in schools. I think it's really sad, like here in Houston, so many schools don't even have a school librarian. Yeah. Like, honestly, um, I'm just, I've witnessed schools go from cutting all arts programming to cutting recess to yep. cutting out the library. Because yep. I, I mean, I was fortunate enough to start teaching when I was in college. So mm -hmm. when I was in college, um, students would go to the library. That would be a class. You sit in the library, yeah. you yeah. get a book. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you would have recess and you would have PE and mm -hmm. you would have like you just have time to be yes just time to experience and to form your own systems of values and understanding of the world yeah. and i've watched how quickly because it's in my lifetime i'm not very yeah. old yeah. Same. I mean, yeah they don't even good. give kids that time anymore no and i think that what you're talking about the stripping away of everything except you know, basically like standardized testing, like reading, writing, math. And not to say that those skills are not useful. Of course, you need to know reading, writing, arithmetic. Like, yes, you have to know these things. But what does it mean when our education system only focuses on these things and only focuses on them in such a limited fashion? Mm -hmm. um, focusing on them in the scope of a standardized test, that's not really learning how to read. That's not really learning how to write. You know what I'm saying? So I think that there is a practice going on. I think the people in power know the power of art. They know the power of music. They know the power of libraries. And they know what it means to have little kids have time for PE and recess to like, there's kinetic knowledge. You know, there's a knowledge of learning how your body moves. There's knowledge of learning how to play with your friends without adults telling you, you know, the rules of a game. There's a knowledge of making up your own games on the playground. like they know the power in these activities and that's why they have worked so hard to take them away so that these kids are in school all day basically learning to take tests mm -hmm. um and i think that it's important to have these conversations about art and different types of knowledge because our communities <laughs> desperately need it um and there are skills like when you're doing art, when you're playing music, you're doing math, you're reading, you're like you're doing all these other things. It's just being synthesized in your brain in a useful way, in a different way. And I think the same can be said for archival work. I think that when you're, you know, you do projects where kids are going home and talking to their elders about their elders' childhood. Well, that's learning to ask questions. That's learning to listen. That's learning to write and take notes. Uh, when you maybe are putting things in alphabetical order. Well, that's, you know, practicing your ABCs. That's practicing your reading skills. Um, we have to think about education beyond learning to ace a test. We have to think about education as how can we get kids to connect with other people in their families, connect with their history, connect with their communities. And, you know, it's just, it's a shame that kids now don't have as many opportunities as we did, I mean, I even think maybe like we were more limited than <laughs> perhaps, you know, our, like it just, 
you know, it's heartbreaking to think about the vastly different public education my son will receive than I did, you know, like that's sad uh, that he, anyway, different conversation, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to say, like, I think that they know the power of these things and that's why uh, they are being taken away from so many schools. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad. Um, I'm going to pause the recording just for one second. My daughter just woke up on. So actually, I think I do want to follow that line of thought because it is connected. Like my identity as a mother is connected to my identity as an artist and my identity as an educator. Um, I remember I read this book called We Live for the We when I was pregnant and it's a book on black mothering. And she brings up this idea of the other mother, like in black womanhood, you're raised to always have this understanding. It's about the community. So I know in my own personal life, when I was even like 10 or 11, I was helping taking care of the younger children in my family. Mm -hmm. um, I was babysitting. That was uh, a way that I made some money when I was young. And so um, even as an educator, this idea of you are the parent, um, like they say that in the classroom, like legally, when the kids are in your care, you are their local parentis. It's your parent in the place of their parents. So this idea that even before I had a baby, mm -hmm. that I was always here to take care of the babies, you know, um, that has really influenced the things that I do and the ways that I, I carry on my life. And honestly, I do not want my child to go into any school. I don't care if it's public or private because the practices don't vary widely. Yeah, sure, private schools have, probably they do have recess and they have better facilities and more time to themselves, but it doesn't take away from the fact that my daughter won't be allowed to communicate in any way that she wants. They're still going to prioritize writing over any other kind of communication. And um, I wanted you to, I guess, reflect with me on what would an education for our children look like? One, the one that we want, what, what do you want that to look like? Wow. Um what the education I want for my son to look like. Uh, I, first of all, want his educational environment to be safe and affirming above all. Like I think everything kind of stems from that. Having a black son, like, and knowing how the world will see him I want him to be safe <laughs> at school. Like I just, however, however anybody listening defines safety, I want him to be physically safe, emotionally safe. That school, wherever he is, needs to be a safe place for my black baby to be. Hmm. Unfortunately, as we see on the news every day, like I mentioned earlier, like all this, this blown up critical race theory stuff, we see the, pol the police presence in schools, which to me is outrageous. All of these systems are in place that endanger my black son. So off top, 
any type of educational experience he has has to be safe and affirming. Beyond that, um, it needs to be a place where his developmental milestones are respected and where many different types of intelligences and modes of expression are respected. And by that, I mean, I'm not necessarily the type to sort of like follow this when he's six, he's supposed to do this. And when he's seven, he's supposed to do this. Like, yeah, you know, generally I understand like there are things, you know, I understand <laughs> like certain things they kind of should be able to do by a certain age, I get that. But I don't want it to be where he's made to feel less than if he's not so great at one thing, he may be really awesome at something else, you know? So like respect how he's developing and sort of cater his educational experience accordingly. Um, I also want like I say, different modes of expression, dance, uh, music, art, um, speaking, you know, like being in an environment where he's not just in a desk for hours at a time, learning tips and tricks on how to ace a test. Like, that's my thing. Um, I think that hands-on uh, education is very, very important. Um, if we're learning about, I don't know, the water cycle, have kids go outside and touch the rain, you know? <laughs> it's a rainy day. Like, we're, this is an example of what we're learning about in science class. Like, let's, like use our bodies to learn. Um, I think that's very important for small kids and big kids. I also think that practicality, I want him to have a practical education. Like you mentioned earlier, having a basic knowledge of how taxes work. That's something that should be taught in high school. Like you should graduate because you know you have to start doing these things like when you turn 18 and up, you should have a basic understanding for how to fill out a basic, you know, tax, you know, file, just a base, you know, like nothing complicated, but you should sort of understand how it works. You should understand how to balance your checking accounts, right? Like these are things that used to be taught in school. It's not even a radical idea. Home economics was this. It was sort of a teaching life skills class. Like I had home ec in high school and that was one of my favorite classes. We learned sewing, we learned cooking. Um, we had a unit on childcare. Like, it was literally one of my favorite classes and most of my other classes were pre-AP and AP classes, but that class, I still remember to this day, I remember the teacher, I just learned so much. I was like, oh, well, this is cool. This is how you sew on a button. I'm gonna use this, you know? <laughs> so I, I want my son to have a practical education. We're in an environment where media literacy is a life skill. You need to know how to gauge the you know accuracy and efficacy of whatever you're reading on the internet like that's not a joke like kids need to be learning this in k-12 so um i just think that those are the that's the the framework that i want my child to be educated in i want it to be safe i want it to be affirming i want it to be practical and i want different types of knowledge and expression to be respected i Again, we're we're of the same spirit. Um, when I was thinking about like what I saw as a unique need for children, you know, like in the past, the idea was to present history and facts with an unbiased lens. 
so that the student could create and form their own opinion. But just like you mentioned, the media. My baby's gone. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll be I'll be here. I'm gonna pause it. Sorry. You know, honestly, I thought my daughter was going to sleep through as well. I think it's like she knew I wasn't there and she knew I was busy and she wanted to be a part of it. That's what happened. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Welcome. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Baby, do you see him? Say hi. Oh, she's waving. <laughs> what I did want to end on is um, today education on how to be, how to exist, like a very practical education isn't what we're getting. Um, we're focused a lot on standardized tests because it's about the numerical value of things like the the quality the qualitative education about like values is gone but the quantitative elements um have remained and honestly that's a lot of it's happening throughout our society things that are are um, more quantitative are being higher valued than the things that are qualitative and um gen z they call this dark academia like the kind of oh the kind of academic experience where you just talk about the liberal arts. Um, hmm. They're very nostalgic for it because they don't get it anymore. Oh. I was so amazed. Um, things like reading um, like Langston Hughes or, or writing poetry has become like a, like a, a, like a, a lifestyle choice. Wow. Yeah. That is interesting. Dark, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> you, should, you should totally look it up. And honestly, the biggest critique that I saw that the younger generation has is that dark academia is overwhelmingly white. Um, and it's always focused on like, you know, learning all the Greek myths and then like talking about like white culture in a very like, um, kind of pedantic way, like something that's like, this isn't important at all. And it really just supports like a racist ideology. Um, yeah. But I, I do believe that like, I, I have understood my whole life that black people have always pursued education. And it's a type of education that is a value-based education. It's always been an education on how to be because that's like our story, isn't it? Like when we got here, nobody gave us any instruction manual on how to become a part of this country. And in fact, all the kind of help that we could have gotten by you know, going to schools and being taught how to read and write and giving those educational experience, we weren't given those. So again, we had to create things and we had to create objects to record our lives. I guess I just want to end on like, how do you see yourself integrating creativity in your life, but also emphasizing the importance of like history and archiving? Um, the way I want to integrate creativity into my life, um, I think, and since having the little one. This is something that I, I find myself thinking about 
often because I want him to have sort of a rich cultural experience. I want him to have a really strong cultural foundation as a black man, um, whether he ends up growing up in America or somewhere else. Like I want that to be strong within him um, because I've seen what happens when people don't have that foundation. It's not pretty. <laughs> um, so I think about trying to instill values within him that help him understand that he does have the power to create. And I think that that is a divine power. There is something divine in, there's something, you know, something's not there. And then you think about it in your mind and you make it with your hands and it's there. Like there's something incredibly magical in that power. Like you created something like this object or this poem or this song did not exist before you came along. Um, and I want him to understand that he has an innate, precious, divine power to create, not just objects or art, which awesome, but also create your experience as a person on this earth to a certain extent. Of course, you, you know, there are the circumstances that you can't help, like, you know, um, but within those circumstances, understanding that you don't have to simply accept what's being given to you. You can create something that is more fulfilling for yourself. And I think that that is something wonderful and powerful. Our ancestors, they tried to take that away from our ancestors. They tried to take away that innate power to affect their own circumstances and create the life that they wanted. And I want my son and all, you know, black children, all children to understand that power and have that power. Um, and I think having a strong cultural foundation is essential in that. Knowing your culture's folk tales, knowing languages and dialects outside of standard English, uh, understanding that when someone says, oh, you speak Ebonics or you speak A-A-B-E, like that's, that's incorrect. That's wrong. You need to, you know, learn another way to speak. Sure, you know, learn another way to speak just so you can move in and out of certain spaces. But don't sit up and tell me that the way that I speak and the way that my ancestors speak is wrong. It's not wrong. You know, um, I want him to have the inner strength to be able to confront these things when they come to him as a young black man. Um, so, emphasizing creativity is just something that I. Um, I don't know, that's so important to me. It's like, yes, I am who I am. He's gonna learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know, <laughs> like I'm just that type of person who I just value, you're gonna do your schoolwork, okay? You're gonna learn your basic skills, but you're also going to learn how to be a positive force in this world, how to create positivity, um, how to create your own experience. If you find yourself around a whole bunch of people who are not feeding your spirit or who are tearing you down and whatnot, I want him to know he has the power to be like, you know, this isn't serving me. I'm going to seek an environment that serves me and that is more in alignment with who I am and who I want to be. I want him to know that early on. I don't want him to be grown, <laughs> you know, and just not kind of figuring out how to find cultural spaces that fit with who uh, he is or who he wants to be. Um, so when I think about creativity, that's what I, I want to emphasize, like you have this power within you uh, to create 
your experience on this earth uh, through art or whatever else it may be. Um, and history is important to that. You can't do that without knowing who you are and where you come from. I agree. So the words I'm getting is culture as a process. We should be teaching the processes that allowed us in the past to create our, our lives. And that should be simple. So thank you for having this conversation with me. <laughs> thank you for having me on. I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> this is a, a show for that. <laughs> I feel like we need to ramble because the ideas need space to live. And I don't ever want anyone to feel like they went on and on because honestly, we kind of need to go on and on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 we do. And, and just thank you for having me on. Thank you for having this little guy on and being understanding, <laughs> sort of ending his nap early. So. <laughs> well, we're, we're in the same boat because he's up and he's up. They wanted to meet each other. They said, hi. Yes, <laughs> we'll have to get together one day so that they can play. We'll oh, I'm definitely going to prioritize that. Yes, awesome, awesome. <laughs> well, you guys have a good morning and I'll see you again soon. Yes, thank you so much. Y'all have a good morning as well. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, sweetie. <laughs> My name is Shatana Powell, founder of Artivism Community Art, located in Houston, Texas. Artivism Community Art is a production company that creates community-led media. Our products and services accommodate the lack of participation in creative fields among African Americans of all ages by providing resources that teach the philosophy and design of the African diaspora. We help people diverse in age, race, and ethnicity want to know more about black culture, create their own system of learning by providing resources and tools through our monthly subscription box. According to a 2019 study by SMU Data Arts, less than 6% of African Americans are employed in creative fields in Houston, Texas. Less than 4% participate in cultural activities, despite the fact that African Americans make up 18% of the population. During our conferences between 2016 to 2020, Artivism Community Art found that the cultural practices of black and brown people are not well represented in the arts culture and education industry, resulting in a lack of participation and employment in creative fields among African Americans. Our products and services increase representation in the arts by employing black and indigenous creators to create and design culturally situated curriculum and art centers the culture, lives, and history of Black and Indigenous populations. During our gatherings, both virtual and physical, we display the work and have interactive experiences, increasing opportunities for Black Indigenous voices to be seen and amplified. To learn more, visit artivismcommunityart.com. Thank you.